One of the biggest aha moments of my career was discovering that I wasn't actually in the food and beverage industry. I was in the inventory management business. And the easiest way to make more money wasn't one-off events or nightly specials. It was optimizing my seating inventory on peak. More butts in seats is more money today. And here's how you get it. Yelp for Restaurants guest manager waitlist functionality empowers your guests to add themselves to your digital waitlist before they even leave their house. It provides accurate wait times and automatically notifies diners right before their table is ready. This dramatically reduces turn times, enabling you to handle more volume. Learn more about how this powerful tool can optimize your seating inventory today at restaurants.yelp.com. Now here we go. I think our industry, first of all, is going through an unprecedented amount of change. And you can just see it all around us. It's happening in the way that we operate. It's happening in the, certainly in the area of technology and digital. But it's also happening in the kind of people and leaders that are going to succeed in this business and how we work together. Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. If you think it's hard to build a brand, try turning one around. The Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf scaled to 1,200 locations globally, but after decades of success, the wheels of progress began to slow. And that's when today's guest, Sanjeev Razdan, was brought in as CEO. It was his job to take a great business and evolve it into a great company. Today, we discuss what it takes to begin again when you're in the middle of it and the tools he's crafted to ensure that his new beginning has a happy ending. I was familiar with the coffee bean and tea leaf back from the time I'd spent in Asia over two decades ago. I remember walking into a mall, experiencing the concept when the only alternate available was Starbucks and thinking, oh my gosh, this is a really smartly put together brand and concept. And I wonder who's behind this and what's happening. So it was very innovative, cut through, and it stuck in my head. Life took me literally around the globe since then. I cut to the pandemic. Like so many others in the industry, I'm thinking about what does this mean for me and my career and what I want to do next. And I was approached around the same time by folks from the coffee bean and tea leaf saying, hey, we've recently acquired the brand in the company. We think the U.S. is an enormous white space for us. But this is a turnaround opportunity of a much-loved legacy brand. What do you think? And for me, the fact that it had fantastic core product, the brand resonated in Southern California and the Southwest in general, and yet had quite a bit of work that needed to happen that I felt my skill set could make an impact on, that's what resonated. And then the people that I met along the way, Josh, were like wonderful, talented, sincere, just felt like their heart was in the right place. And I was like, okay, sign me up. How did mentorship play a role in your evolution as a leader that got you to the place you are? So I started my career as a restaurant manager in the hotel business back in the day. 
And then from there, went on to being, uh, got into the chain restaurant business and so on and built my career from ground up. Every step of the way, I was very blessed to have mentors in my life. Sometimes these mentors sat me down and said, you're getting ahead of your skis, gave me some tough love. And at other times, they were the ones that pushed me to dream bigger than I thought I could achieve things. And as my career grew, there were mentors who were very helpful in, in addressing very specific things. So I'll give you an example. At one point, I was in a large company and someone said, hey, look, in order for you to grow and take on large general management roles, people need to want to feel like they would work for you and you are not authentic. And if you don't come across as being an authentic leader, we can't promote you. So those were the sorts of situations where I have turned to very specific mentors and said, look, I need help. This is the problem I have. How do I deal with this? And so multitude of times that's happened. And I can't thank my mentors enough that helped me in so many different ways on my journey. That had to be hard to hear, huh? I mean, you just like one human to another. I think one would rather hear that they are stupid or unintelligent than inauthentic. How did you reconcile that and how did you work on it? Yeah, Josh, I think that destroyed me. Yeah. One of the val personal values I thought was important to me at that stage of my life and still is, was integrity. And in that stage, I just thought, hey, the opposite of authenticity is duplicitous. And someone's telling me that I'm not, you know, lack personal integrity. I just didn't know what was causing it, why I was portraying this. And whilst people were able to identify the problem for me, I really struggled to understand how to fix it or what I was doing specifically, what part of my behaviors was leading to this perception. So the way I dealt with this was to, first off, uh, swallow my pride and come to terms with the feedback and say, perception is reality. That was not easy. And then start to ask people, hey, here's the feedback that I've been given. I trust and respect your professional opinion. Can you connect the dots for me and tell me how I'm showing up and how might that be leading to the perception that I lack authenticity? And as I started seeking feedback from a core set of people that I call it my board of directors, my personal board of directors, people that I know and trust and value their opinion, they were very generous with feedback and they started saying things like, hey, when you show up to meetings, we sometimes think that what you say is what everybody wants to hear as opposed to what Sanjeev really thinks. So that was an example, that you're politically correct in the choice of your words, that you don't take contrarian positions, that perhaps that leads to the perception that you lack courage. So I was had to mine for specific insights that helped me connect the dots between how was I showing up and what perception was that leading to. So that was challenge number one. From there, I seeked out a mentor, was vulnerable, shared the feedback, shared what I was trying to achieve, and then said, look, I'm committed, help me get there. Also, I signed up for some structured leadership development where you go to a program when someone runs psychometric diagnostics in you, you get a ton of feedback, they shake you up, and then they try and build you up all over again in a structured way. So I did that as well. 
and started really working on not being what I call the fight or flight type of leader, but the collaborative leading from love and courage kind of leader. And what that meant, how should I show up? How should I behave? So it was a long journey and it took me about 12 to 18 months to start to correct that perception. But it was a concerted effort. And I took that on as a project and felt very good at the end of it that I put a dent on that. So I do interviews like this all the time. I'll sit with founders and I'll be like, why is your restaurant so successful? Why were you able to build such a prolific brand? And sometimes I get these really complex, thoughtful answers. And sometimes I get, we have the best food and beverage program possible. And when I get the latter response, I always think to myself, oh, wow, you have no idea why you're successful. And I think that Coffee Bean beautifully illustrates that point because Coffee Bean has consistently had great product, right? Great product is table stakes at this point. Good to great service is table stakes at this point. But you were brought in to turn around a brand that had good to great service and good to great products and was failing to compete competitively in the market. So you had to come in with a vision of what success was outside of product. What is that? As I look at all aspects of the brand, at a high level, what became very clear to us, our success is because we have the best coffee, the best tea, the best flavorings that we add to it. In fact, I would call them Bentley or Rolls-Royce level products, right? We had the best of the best and power to all those who came in before I did that in the face of a lot of adversity, we did not ever compromise with the core product quality. So that was already existing. The challenge was that in order for one to grow and invest in the business, you need to have a strong, scalable, unit-level economic model. If you can make money in one cafe or one restaurant at a time, you can scale this up and make it as big as you want. And our challenge was that we had all of this phenomenal quality product, but because we hadn't invested in the assets, we hadn't remodeled, we hadn't invested in digital and technology, or told the story of our product quality, our ability to price for what that quality was, was limited. So now you are pegging your pricing to a competitive set that has a not so high quality product. Let's just put it this way. (laughs) And you're trying to sell it at the same price as them with an input cost that is far in excess of them, right? So that's the nub of the business issue. And for me, I think the first thing was to get to the core of what the issue is. So the business model problem was, as I said, very high quality, high cost ingredients being sold at the same competitive prices at the kind of mediocre quality, mediocre ingredient input cost. That you can't compete with that. So from there led to the strategy with, okay, so what do we do now? Right. And we kind of put together a very simple framework. We said our turnaround plan, we're going to call it brew because that's the business we're in. So our plan is brew. So what does that mean? The first thing is B for building a global coffee and tea house. Like how do you build a lighthouse brand? Because people are willing to pay the right price for the right product. Right. And so number one priority was let's tell the story of our brand. Let's tell the story of our quality and ingredients and not be all things to all people. Differentiate, 
and be a very clearly positioned brand. So that's point number one. Point number two of our brew strategy was reignite growth. And we had to reignite growth by saying, okay, we're a regional concept in the U.S. at the moment, even though we're globally present in 30 countries. So our strategy was fortify California, let's penetrate Arizona, and enter Texas as our new market. And then we were very successful in non-traditional locations, like airports and hospitals. Let's scale that up. So reignite growth. The E was to elevate talent and electrify engagement. You can't win in this business without people. We had to invest in upgrading talent, invest in their development, invest in engaging franchisees, that kind of what I call elevate and engage talent and the broader team, including our franchisees. And the W of our brew was win on digital. Technology stable stakes now. It's not even a differentiator in our industry anymore. It used to be pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. You're dead in the water if you're not there. So the win on digital for us meant let's upgrade a loyalty program, fix the problems with our app, get on board with things like digital menu boards, line busting, foundational things that allow this business to be a seamless omni-channel business. So brew, build a global tea and coffee house, reignite growth, elevate talent and electrify engagement and win on digital. That was our plan. For the independent restaurants that are listening, I think that there's a string to tug on there. And I think it's around value perception. I think that that is the biggest hurdle for everyone that I heard this old adage a long time ago. It's absolutely the case that price is only an issue if value isn't established. So people say people only pay so much for food. I would respectfully disagree. I think that with the right story paired with the right audience, you can sell anything for anything out there. And in order for you to achieve your ambitions with Brew, you had to know that in this repositioning, you are going to alienate an existing part of your audience, which is hard for most owners and operators. It is definitely tough, right? And this is where choice making comes in. I think, let me put it this way. There's extremely few brands that can be all things to all people. There are a few. They're extremely few, right? That is a very high-risk strategy if you're trying to be a broad, broad concept because you just lose the lane that you're swimming in. So the thing is, you got to choose your lane. Now, here's a couple of things that I, I have learned, not just at the coffee bean, but in life, right, in this business that may be relevant to people. I think fact number one, if you're playing in the high-quality kind of space, whether it's some story about your product, your ingredients, how you source, how you prep, how you... Let's say you're a scratch cooking kind of concept, or you only source from farm to table, or you're doing something so unique. If you do not tell anybody that you're doing that, and it's the best kept secret in the world, then there is no value creation. It does not matter what you're doing. We all think that these things, people's palate can tell the difference. And yes, it can, but it's very hard to tell the difference if the story is not being told by the brand of what makes your product special and different, because that's where the value gets created. So if there's one thing that I'd ask people to think about is, in your own little way, how are you telling the story of what makes your product different? And why do you think, therefore, there should be some value attached to it? Please tell that story, whether it's on your Instagram, whether it's on a poster in your restaurant, whether it's through menu card or flyer or however, on your packaging, 
seize every consumer touch point and don't hesitate to tell your story. Learning number one. Learning number two is that whilst we're trying to pick a swim lane, just as much as there are concepts that are very few that succeed in being extremely broad, there are equally very few concepts that can succeed in being extremely narrow. The vast majority of concepts play somewhere in that middle, right? Where you've got a reasonably broad appeal, but you're not extremely narrow, extremely broad. For that sweet spot, as you think about value, think about entry, core, and premium. What is your entry level value proposition? So someone who can't really afford your brand for the most, trying to access it, wants to enjoy it, your restaurant, your cafe, whatever it is, have something at entry level that people can access that will drive value perception. It'll make your brand accessible. What is the core? That's where you want to peg competitively, right? Your price points, your portion sizes so that the price value perception is, is pegged at who you are at the core. And then always to afford your value entry price points, you need to have premium so that folks who want to be a little bit more indulgent on a given day, have something that they can turn to from your menu that gives them a more indulgent experience for a price. So stating the obvious here, but I thought I'd call that out because time and again, I've found that that becomes a critical framework for just setting up your concept in a way that you can win. Let's talk about the transition from COO to CEO. Two offices, which are probably pretty close to each other in proximity, but are a world away in terms of scope. I would assume that for you over the last couple of years, you're still learning in your career, right? A new job and a new company, a new role is a new opportunity to learn. So in your time in this role, what have you learned? Josh, let me start by saying how I prepared for the role and then what I've learned from the role as well. Being the president of the company or being a general manager of a business has been something that For some people, you know, they get thrown into the role or it's sort of thrust upon them. For me, this has been a lifelong ambition. I've wanted it very deeply. So I've thought about it. I've chased it and I've prepared myself for it. And for me, again, it went back to saying, okay, how do I prepare for this? So the first thing I did was that I needed to build my career in a way that I had expertise in more than one area. I knew from the word go, you can't be an expert at everything, but you can be an expert or know enough to be dangerous in more than one functional area. So for me, I seeked out roles. I was chief development officer of Pizza Hut UK at one point. I did some concept development roles, marketing roles. So I broadened myself, made it known within my company that that's how I wanted to grow my career and pushed my employers to open doors and opportunities for cross-functional roles. So if somebody out there also shares a similar aspiration of, hey, I need to get to a certain role, ask yourself the question, what will you need to do to get there and start making it known. And I was very lucky to have been given those opportunities. So I think that was number one. Number two, how are you constantly sharpening your saw and keeping abreast of what's happening, not just in your company, but outside the company in the industry, right? So for me, whether that was listening to podcasts, reading books, attending seminars, talking to people who know, networking. It was a concerted effort to constantly learn and be curious and figure out what else is happening. That was super helpful. And the third thing was talk to people who are already doing that role and say, look, how do you make that transition? Nobody gets put into the CEO role overnight. 
So how did you prepare for it and get there? And one of the best pieces of advice I got was, look, in that role, you're fundamentally taking care of three things. You have to have clarity on what is your consumer proposition or what is it that makes your concept compelling to your customer? How do you make money? What's your business model, right? Be very clear about how your business model becomes more successful. What are the levers that you can pull? And the third thing is in our business, the operating platform or how you operate becomes so critical. So those are the three things of a three-legged stool, the consumer, the operating platform, and the financial model. And so that gave me a framework to think about, okay, so if I want to become a general manager, I need to be mindful of this balance on how do we win consumers, how do we make money, and how do we operate? So that was helpful. When I got into the role, I think the big learning for me was, number one, don't be over intrusive in the areas or the functional areas that you come from. I got out of the way of the operations team because that's where I come from. I'm often tempted to jump in there just because that's where my kind of hardwiring is from a lot of different areas. I think number one is to not try and resist the urge to go back and being in your comfort zone. Number two, I think by the time you get to roles at these levels, you're dealing with very talented people. So I spend my energy now 20 to 30% of my time I expend on people, whether it's hiring, development, team building, engagement. That is very different. I don't think I've spent 30% of my time doing that in previous roles. That was a big shift for me. And part of that is coaching. So I've learned to resist the urge to express my opinion less and ask more questions. And the biggest learning is if you surround yourself with great people and the right talent, then all they need is to be stimulated by and cause them to think by asking the right questions and then allowing collaboration and co-creation to take place so that you get not just intellectual commitment, but you get emotional commitment to what you're trying to achieve. So those were some of the learnings. And I think the third thing was that it's lonely at the top, right? And you hear it. But you never know what the heck that people mean by that until you're in that situation. If you have to show up every day, being as positive as you can, being the cheerleader for the team, keep the morale up, that's hard. And so you've got to work on your own self-care and also just talk to yourself about saying you can only focus on the things you can control and not worry about that which you can't, right? And then also continue to remind your team of that, right? Otherwise you can pull yourself down. So those were two or three things that I've learned since. You bring up an interesting point. And if we were to take this conversation one rung up, what you're talking about is clearly defining your role, that you're clearly defining your role and the highest and best use of your time. When I sit down for coaching sessions, initial coaching sessions with independent restaurant owners or operators, the first question I ask is, how do you spend your time? And then they share and I say, oh, well, you're a restaurant manager. You're not a restaurant owner. You may own the equity, but you function as a restaurant manager. And the reason that they do is because they were never trained on what a restaurant owner does. They never took the time to think about, and I was guilty of this for a decade or so myself. I never took the time to think about, well, now that I own, how should my role change? How should it evolve? I was very comfortable, like you mentioned, in slipping back into that operational role. 
because that's what I'm really good at. That's what got me to the level of ownership. Talk to me about the process that you went through to define your role and what the highest and best use of your time is, and to pair that with the accountability measures that you've put in place for yourself to make sure that you do indeed fulfill those duties. So I'd like to break that down into into two ways. But the mantra is something that I've heard from my mentors and other successful leaders, which is invest time in doing things that only you can do. It's simple. If you ask yourself this question, am I the only person who can be doing this? Then yes, <laughs> you should be investing your time in that. And if there's three other people in your company who can be doing this or your team, then that's probably not the best use of your time, right? So I think that for me was the overall very high level filter. But with that said, a framework that I've learned and works for me, Josh, is what I call the strategy, structure, culture model. So let me explain how I've used that. I think for me in any new role, not just in my current role, but every single new role that I take on, and often at the beginning of every year, I start off by saying we will co-create strategy. And what I mean by that is I sit down with my team, sometimes invite other team members to it who may not be on my direct team, but who are relevant. And we put the problems on the table. We put our ambitions on the table and we try and figure out what do we want to achieve and how are we going to get there? Ultimately, that's what strategy is. We try and articulate that in a simple way and put together what I call a plan on a page. If we can put it down in a simple way on one page that then we can take to the rest of our team and say, "Here, here's what we're trying to do this year. This is our ambition. These are the four things that will get us there. And therefore, this is our plan. So now we have a structure of what I call a strategy, right? Once you have that strategy in place, that becomes very clear about this is the biggest priorities for the company or my team or my restaurant. And this is where I want to devote the most of my time. Following that, I would encourage everyone to create what I call a structure. What do I mean by structure? Okay, so let's say your plan is that this year, making this up, I want to move my Instagram followers from 10,000 to 100,000 because we believe that that is going to be low-cost advertising. We can keep our customers engaged, whatever may be the reason. Then. How are we going to structure our time to get there? Who is going to own that task? How are we going to resource it? Will we do it in-house? Are we going to get external help to get that done? How much money are we going to set aside for that? How often are we going to meet to discuss success or progress on that objective? Is that a weekly stand-up conversation? Is that a monthly meeting? How are we going to track it down? I think that is what I mean by structure is to put very clear. And does somebody own it, right? Is there an individual who is assigned the biggest priority on the team to run that? So having clarity and structure became super important. And then following that is culture. Can I identify what I'm trying to achieve, how I'm going to get there through a very clear structure, metrics, owners, operating rhythms. And then finally, how are we building a culture that makes doing all of this fun? And not by intuitively just sort of playing along, but having a very purposeful way of building culture around that. So if the culture in this is, hey, we're going to be committed to product quality, then what things are you going to do to catalyze that? So have a plan to do that. So strategy, structure, culture. That's the mantra that I've approached. And then when you overlay that with invest time in 
only the things you can do. And it leads to a really nice framework of where do I devote my time? I will say, though, is the world changes at such a rapid pace, Josh, that revisiting that every three to four months is probably a good discipline at the moment. I used to revisit it every 12 months, and I now find that 12 months is almost a lifetime away. The world changes so rapidly. So I revisit these things quarterly and try and ask myself, am I still focused on the right things? Is my time being devoted on the best use case scenario? I could be wrong here, but I'm going to take a guess that once you figured out the what in strategy, everything else for strategy, structure, and culture is a question around who. Very much. It's a question around who and follow-up. And what I mean by that is often you think, sometimes you place your bets on someone about, okay, who's going to lead this and how are they going to get there? And that's great. And you say, okay, hey, you're going to do this. Sanjeev, this is your task. You're going to own this big priority for us. But I think follow through is important because unless you follow through, you don't know how this person is getting along, whether they're making progress, where they're getting stuck, what's getting in the way. How can we accelerate their growth? So follow through is really important. But yes, it's very much about who. The greatest leaders that I know are great at making hard decisions. It's the hardest part of leadership is firing a really great person who is no longer right for the job or sitting down and having a really tough conversation with someone you think the world of. I would imagine in a turnaround like this, that especially in the first 12 to 18 months, It was just an endless series of hard decisions that needed to be made. How do you reconcile that? How do you stick to your guns? How do you rev yourself up? Because I believe that hard decisions, obvious hard decisions that must be made, are one of the greatest entrepreneurial hurdles there are. Yeah, for sure, Josh. And I think there were a lot of hard decisions to be made, and we continue to make them. I think I walked into a situation where we had some talent that was absolutely tenured and brilliant and other people who were unfortunately put in the wrong role for them or overpromoted or just what I call battlefield roles and promotions. When we switched and pivoted into the growth mode, not everybody was able to get out of the battlefield mindset and zone and make it to, here's how I lead or work through a growth environment. So some of the things that work for me, first of all, just radical candor and transparency, that whole authenticity piece, right? Just be transparent from day one about what the expectations are from the business and from the individual. And by that, it always helps to have documented expectations in some shape or form, whether it's goals, objectives, or even if you had a one-on-one saying, here's what I expect from you drop an email saying, hey, we just spoke, just summarizing what we've agreed to do. Here are the three things you're going to do. Just leave it. That's it, right? It helps the employee. It helps the supervisor. And it just provides clarity. So number one, just setting clear expectations, super helpful. And number two, being unafraid and making it a habit of providing feedback. So if you're in the habit of providing feedback, whether it is, hey, what a great job. Those are the three things we agreed to do. You've accomplished them all. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. What do you think you want to be working on next? When that culture exists as a regular feature, 
it's so much easier to provide tough feedback because it's not out of character. It's not unique. You're not having to create special time and place and sit down and say, let's talk about how you're doing, because you always talk about how someone's doing. So I think from the word go, start creating those feedback conversations. And may I add that also seeking feedback, right, is equally important. Where the employee is able to, it's not a one-way street, also able to have the time space to be able to say, hey, here's what's going really well for me or not. But by the way, here's the help I need from you. Or if you could lead me differently or help me prioritize, I can't do all three of them at the moment. I can only do two. Which two of these three would you pick? Make sure that the employee has the space to have that conversation. So I think for me that that was the other piece that I was very disciplined in trying to do from the word go. And I think the third thing is that if and when there is a difficult decision to be made, and it will be, and people should be making them, otherwise the bigger business suffers, I think how are you going to leave people feeling? If someone has to be let go or someone has to be told this is just not the right fit and it's time to call it, just the nature of that conversation, I always take a lot of time to think about it. I imagine it in my head. I put myself in the shoes of the receiving person. It's never going to be pleasant, but how can I conduct it in a way that two months later when they reflect on it, that individual can say, I was treated with respect. May not be the outcome I wanted, but at least I was treated with respect. So I think that allows me to sleep well at night saying, it was a hard decision, but I did my best to treat the person that I had to have the tough conversation with, with respect. So those are the three things that have really helped me navigate these waters. Our industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think our industry, first of all, is going through an unprecedented amount of change. And you can just see it all around us. It's happening in the way that we operate. It's happening in the, certainly in the area of technology and digital, but it's also happening in the kind of people and leaders that are going to succeed in this business and how we work together. And what I'd like to see more and more of is two or three things. I think, number one, mentoring is vital, structured development for our people. We are quite possibly the second largest employer as an industry in the U.S. One out of five people in the U.S. has at some stage worked in our industry. And yet, if you look at the amount of organizations that provide the ability of not skill-based training, I'm not talking about, let me teach you how to prepare a sandwich or a burger or whatever it is that you're doing. I'm talking about Here's how to create a labor schedule or how to manage your call. I'm talking about how to have a difficult conversation, how to motivate your team, how do you inspire people, how do you write a compelling piece of communication. Those kinds of things we don't teach. And I would love to see our industry investing more in that. One way of doing that is through mentoring. I'm so passionate about that. I participate in a nonprofit called Gleam Network that provides very, very low-cost mentoring to individuals. It's an all-volunteer nonprofit organization for anybody that's interested in either volunteering their time or seeking mentorship. Please visit gleamnetwork.net and you'll see what options are available for you. So one is I'd just love to see more investment in people. 
in whichever way we can do this. I think the second thing is that for all of us, me included, I think just learning from what is happening in our environment and pattern thinking, what is happening in other adjacent industries that we can apply in our industry. We tend to be quite insular. Uh, At best, when we do things, we're looking at restaurant level conferences and best practice sharing and creating that. At worst, we bury our head in the sand. And so I think what is happening in consumer services outside of restaurants, can we look at digital banking? Can we look at airlines? Can we look at what Clear has done at the airport or just virtual businesses, e-commerce? I think we've got to learn to start seeing what else is happening around us that is applicable and apply those patterns to our business to leapfrog. I'd love to see those two things happening. Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And when restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com to learn more today. That's Sanjeev Razdan. For more information on Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, visit coffeebean.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.